0: everyone, welcome back to Babylon 5 vs. Deep Space Nine, the greatest podcast about the two great 90's space station shows. This is Bob from Cascadia, I got Matt from the Southland on the line, how you doing today Matt? This is the one
1: where Sheridan arrives.
0: Hey. Yay! Hooray for Sheridan! All right. So in the A-plot, Captain John Sheridan is ordered to leave his ship, the Agamemnon, and take command of Babylon 5, where Sinclair has been ordered to Minbar. Delenn is still cocooned, Garibaldi is still in a coma after being shot, and Jakar is off investigating the attack on Narn forces at the end of Season 1. And in the B-plot, Sheridan's tradition of giving a speech, including a quotation from Abraham Lincoln's 1862 message to Congress, is interrupted by another member of the Minbari Gray Council who has come to disapprovingly check on Dylan's cocoon and uh, sees another notorious rogue Minbari warrior on on station.
1: Here's where I'm going to raise my hand and say, uh, Bob, what what about the Trigotti? You left
0: out everything about the Trigotti. I mean the you know, the other notorious rogue Minbari warrior is the captain of the Trigati. Yeah, but the Trigati was a big a big a big piece of this episode. You left out the Trigotti. I I think it's implicit. Okay. Okay. Look, man, Abraham Lincoln, more interesting than the Tregotti. I'm sorry. I saw it. I said it. I said it. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, Matt. What did the Tregati ever do? Well
1: Trigotti didn't really do anything, just a just a rogue rogue Minbari ship that that this, the whole plot centers around, but nobody does. Just Try, tried up. to just commit cover.
0: suicide one way, wound up committing suicide in another way yeah. that had very little it, effect. It just, just a, just a pretty big part of this episode's plot. But I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide this time, Bob. I'll, always with the criticisms from this guy. No, you, never you satisfied. Have, always carping. You must have been sleeping through that part. I don't know if the, that your guy showed up no no, no. I was I was sleeping through when we were supposed to start recording I, I wouldn't sleep through the episode Matt. I would just <laughs> not pay attention to the episode from time to time
1: so so I'm just gonna say that screw the opening of this episode because uh it lets us know that Garibaldi's not gonna die uh, just, just just throwing that out there the the whole like you know the the intro you mean the
0: new credits the
1: new sequence. credits yeah the new credit sequence the whole intro yeah it's just it it lets you know garibaldi's not gonna die not because they show him like not because they show okay here here he is uh i can't think of the name the guy's name who's the actor jerry doyle yeah jerry doyle not just because jerry doyle is shown there at at that part where it says okay starring jerry doyle i'm talking about the very end of the credits where like they zoom in from like far away onto babylon 5's like little window pane thing and now you see Sheridan standing next to Garibaldi, on one side, and Ivanova on the other.
0: I mean, they do—they do that shot at the end of every uh, every credit scene, though I believe
1: they do. But I'm saying, in the previous one, it was Sinclair in the center. Now it's Sheridan, so we know that Garibaldi does wake up at some point.
0: I mean, we don't know that for for a. Yes,
1: solid we fact. do. He's standing next to Sheridan. Duty hasn't technically hasn't all, met all, yet.
0: All the time, you see scenes in the credits that never actually take place in the show. Kind of like you, you know, you frequently see scenes in trailers that don't take place in movies.
1: I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he's standing next to Sheridan. If he's standing next to Sheridan, that means that theoretically, in their world, at some point, they were all three standing next to each other. And if that's the case, Garibaldi had to wake up at some point.
0: Not necessarily because again, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're confusing you're confusing out of context scenes uh, set to music with no sound with canon, Matt, and there's no need to think that the out of context scenes that are uh, set to music in the opening credits are canon.
1: That is just, that is so that's so false, <laughs> not true. Garibaldi, I'm sure I know Garibaldi survives this. I get that, but still, like so what your, you're saying is
0: it's it's your firm belief that uh, before every DS9 episode, a comet goes around the station it <laughs> goes around while the names of the cast are spelled out yeah. on the star field around the station they all wait if you look out the windows you can see it it's pretty cool so that's that's what jake and nog did for most of season one two they just sat there and waited to see the comment which came you know roughly every week. Credit,
1: and the credits roll in space yes it was awesome i
0: mean that's that's fancy stuff man that's fancy stuff
1: my logic is perfectly sound if garibaldi was going to die they wouldn't have him standing next to bruce box in the opening credits at the end when they zoom in
0: on the window the, the implicit premise is flawed the if you if you uh, ignore that uh flawed imp- implicit premise sure it's uh it's sound but you're ignoring your flawed implicit premise that <sighs> uh, what happens in the opening credits is canon
1: so apparently I just just skip the credits, but I can't do that. No, I can't do that on HBO, can I? Never mind. I can do that on HBO Max. <laughs> Unfortunately, on Paramount, I can't. So Paramount Plus, if you'll get that figured out, so I can skip the credits. I love the DS9 opening sequence, but I want to be able to just skip it.
0: Yeah, I I would skip most uh, opening credit sequences if I could, but DS9 and, uh, and Voyager, not two not I uh, skip. Yeah, it's okay to listen to it, but I mean, just after you have to watch so many episodes.
1: You... Now, I definitely want to skip Enterprise. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. All
0: day and three times on Sunday. So what do you think of Sheridan, Bob, at this point? um, I'm enjoying Sheridan. He seems pretty uh, pretty perceptive this episode, pretty good at discerning out people's motives. Maybe, maybe a little too much so. Maybe they're trying to build him up a little too much. But I do like how his command style seems uh, a bit more direct and a bit less diplomatic than Sinclair when he deals with uh, the Minbari and the other aliens. I was a little annoyed by how much he uh, felt like he needed to kiss his uh, staff's ass in that speech. But uh, the speech was interesting and like the gag of him not getting to deliver it was fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm enjoying Sheridan so far. How about you? I agree with everything you said. To me,
1: he seems like a little like anti-alien, but maybe I'm just kind of like reading him a little wrong. Like,
0: is am I supposed to, did you get any feels for that? Like, does he seem I, like- I think you could get that impression. And I think that. That also might have to do with like the direction that the um, the Earth Alliance is moving in. In a lot of ways, Sheridan is going to be much more changed by his time on Babylon Five than Sinclair was. That's a that's kind of something to watch.
1: I mean, as of right now, I feel like he just he, I can kind of tell he does he hates the Mimbari to some degree, and you know and his nickname was Star Killer, so. Yeah, I, mean,
0: I would say like hating the Minbari is maybe a little strong, but I mean he definitely he definitely remembers that they were in a war more than um, more than Sinclair. Yeah, it seems like Sinclair, in, in hindsight, had kind of made an amazing amount of peace with the Minbari, considering you know that he was tortured by them, even though he didn't remember that until later, and you know he was in a death mission against them at the end of the war. Sheridan seems to not have adapted as well to that as Sinclair. But still, I, w- I, w- I don't know if I would go so far as to call him anti-alien.
1: Okay. Uh, he's also really big on fresh food, apparently. That's his thing. He really wants some, uh, some fresh food.
0: Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think the kind of implicit assumption there is that it's probably life is not great on Babylon five in terms of like fresh food, getting to stretch your legs, that sort of stuff. But it's still a lot more luxurious than life, uh, on a, on a ship like, uh, the Agamemnon. Yeah.
1: that's like a huge, like difference between, I guess, Star Trek ships and, uh, Babylon five starships. I think I'd kill to live on a Star Trek starship.
0: Definitely. We have a higher quality of life as, uh, Americans in the declining empire than, uh, People in uh people on ships and stations in Babylon five, but we definitely have a much lower quality of life than people living on at least the nice ships in a in a Star Trek. Well, yeah. do you think you live better than the people on Voyager if they weren't lost in the Delta Quadrant or do you think you live worse?
1: Like personally, right now?
0: Yeah. I mean yeah.
1: I'd probably be about I mean, they have like replicators and holodecks and stuff still on Voyager, so I mean, I think, uh, I
0: think, I think it'd be better to live on Voyager. Yeah. Although, I mean, the thing with replicators is it isn't as good as fresh food. It's not a, it's not bad, I think, but it's like, there's a, there's a few mentions, you know, in the shows that it's like, it's not as good as fresh ingredients. That's why, you know, something like, uh, Ben Cisco's dad's restaurant still exists. Right.
1: Yeah. I feel like if though you, uh, if you like grew up eating nothing but replicated food, you know, you wouldn't know the difference.
0: Yeah, I, I get the impression most people don't do that though. And like unless you were like a a starship kid or a space station kid. Yeah, it, it, it seems like most people, a lot of people probably, maybe not a lot, but they people probably still have some experience with like quote unquote real food, at least like on you know special occasions or like going out to dinner or something. So
1: we've got Sheridan is you know our, our new character, but then we also get another brand new character who comes out of nowhere, uh, Warren Keffer.
0: Who is this guy? Like. It, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, I I I thought they didn't actually introduce him till uh, like three or four episodes into the season, but I, my memory was wrong about that. Uh, maybe it's just that they don't really explain what he does until three or four episodes in, yeah. which is he's a fighter pilot, which makes makes a certain amount of sense because that was something we were griping about in early season one that it it seems really strange that. One of the three senior officers on the station always was leading the uh, Starfighters. Kiefer is in part, I think, a way to avoid that. I think mostly, though, he was, I believe the network just had an edict that uh, they should include, you know, some young 90s looking dude, and they went with Kiefer. I, I would have to research that to verify, but that was... That, that's my impression is that oh yeah we need we need a younger a younger more attractive person for the uh, audience to identify with. Yeah, he's so stereotypical '90s too. He looks like Joey. Yeah, he's. And they're really kind of working too hard, right? They're just having him like socialize with Franklin and Ivanova and potentially Sheridan at the end, and it's just like it just feels really forced because like I feel like we know franklin and Ivanova somewhat well and then just like oh no here's them casually hanging out with another guy you've only seen once before it's just it, it feels a little forced yeah it's like when Tori showed up on uh say by the bell i uh, i don't remember that but i'm sure many of our listeners do and you greatly enlighten them Matt. you're welcome you're welcome for that <laughs> so uh any thoughts on how the show's continuing to stress like the minbari is like more militaristic i feel like that that wasn't such a big thing early in season 1 but in late season 2 and now uh, or sorry in late season 1 and now in early season 2 they're really back to stressing like the Minbari as a you know partially a warrior culture pretty big
1: shift honestly and they, they introduced one of my my new favorite characters a cosplayer goatee Minbari guy
0: <laughs> I mean he's got a
1: goatee I mean they couldn't shave that I mean none of the other none of the other Minbari people have goatees this is the captain of the Trigati, right no, this is the one that sneaks aboard the ship. He uh, sneaks aboard the ship and tries to destroy Delenn's cocoon. I thought
0: that was the captain of the Trigati. Oh, then
1: yes, he is. Yes, he is the captain Trigotti. Excuse me. Yes, see, even I forgot the part about the Trigotti. So you shouldn't feel so bad, Bob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I I feel bad about everything, Matt, except for this thing.
1: <laughs> There's also like these uh, weird, like unspoken rules that are established in this episode between. Uh, The two castes, like Sheridan seems to know about them, but others don't. Did you catch on to that at all? Like in the very beginning? He's like, Mm -hmm. the warrior cast will ever, something, something, the
0: the religious cast. And you're like, what is Sheridan like a freaking scholar on that? I mean, I don't think, I think, you know, it would probably make sense to understand the basics about the social structure of your enemy or your former enemy i can't remember the specific instance you're talking about Uh, so i apologize for failing the listeners but i i I don't know if that would be i mean maybe that does kind of point to that point i was making earlier there that the episode does kind of show sheridan like being pretty perceptive arguably a little too perceptive just you know given the information he has
1: i agree and i think that's what yeah when you when you mentioned that earlier it's kind of it's what kind of popped in my head i was thinking yeah he's he's just very perceptive about their culture and I mean, I guess he had to have been if he was in the war, but it just it comes off strange. When the Mumbari ships approach in the end of the episode, they have their weapon ports open. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then the people on the the station are like freaking out. But isn't that what started the war in the first place? Like yes. The, so <laughs> where's the logic in that? How would like? Shouldn't they just be like, okay, that's just what Mumbari do. They always have their their weapons out. Like
0: they've always got their their, their guns out when they're approaching things so you've supervised people right matt yes you know how you always like just tell people the simplest possible thing yes i think it's kind of a case of that like you just you know you, you in, in training for uh for the earth alliance uh, space force or whatever it's always just be ready when the enemies uh when the enemy's weapons appear to be open and they just don't have time to do the to do the cultural sensitivity training. I I think that's must be what it is. But I I agree with you. It's pretty dumb. I do think at this point after it started a war that literally nearly destroyed uh, human civilization, that the humans should know this and the knowledge should be generally disseminated uh, throughout the military. That said, I do think that the Minbari really ought to reconsider their first contact protocols as well. I agree. I agree. You'll, you'll, you'll get to see this uh, this original scene in a TV movie that I like to call In the Beginning, because that's what they called it. And in that, the Minbari are just saying, like, oh, it's the most self-evident thing in the world. We approach, weapon ports open, people know we're strong. And it's like, that's not necessarily the most self-evident thing in the world, bro.
1: I mean, it's kind of like if I walk into, like, a store with, like, two guns out, like you know, you know, two pistols.
0: So the, Minba- I'm probably the Minbari get shot. think they're just open carrying, but uh, the humans feel like the Minbari actually have uh, the pistol out of the holster. That's what you're saying?
1: Yes, I mean that's exactly what it is. It's like it's like walking into like Walmart with two pistols in your hand and being like, "Don't worry, I come in peace." I mean, you're gonna get shot. It's...
0: I mean honestly at this point if I saw somebody walking around Walmart holding a pistol rather than just having it in a holster I would still just be like eh, another day in America <laughs> Well all right then I mean you you live in, you live in Georgia you haven't seen people walking around uh, Walmart's with a, with a you know like AR15s just I, I don't uh, go to Walmart. out. I don't go to Walmart. Oh, oh, oh. oh. I'm, I'm sorry. People. I didn't realize I was talking to the cultural elite of the state yeah, of Georgia. Yeah, I go to Target. I don't go to Walmart. <laughs> Liberal.
1: I refuse to go to Walmart. And I get my groceries at Kroger. So. At least you don't get your groceries at Target. Groceries at Target are rough. Yeah. Or, I'm, I'm not good enough for Publix yet, so. <laughs> you never will be mad, I fear. Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right, so let's, let's go back to your, your crappy Soul Train joke. Go ahead. All right,
0: so, Matt, now we'd like to talk about Soul Train.
1: So, well, let's talk about this Minbari Soul stuff for a minute. Let me get this straight. This is what's exploited in the episode. They discovered from interrogating and torturing Sinclair that humans are actually reincarnated Minbari.
0: Not all humans.
1: Not all humans are, okay, not all humans are reincarnated Minbari, but that's what ended the war.
0: Yes, because they've noticed a the soul shortage. And some of their best souls have not been reincarnated and have been lost into humans.
1: Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to understand this. And part of me thinks that, does this mean that the human race has some connection with the Minbari? Like their...
0: That wouldn't be an unreasonable guess.
1: Ancestors or something? Like, I'm trying trying to think of why that would happen if you're going um, to be There is a
0: connection it's not the kind of connection you're thinking about but also we're talking more like we're talking in a kind of broader sense here like okay. it's not like you you could imagine like minbari like a minbari soul or here soul or two going into like uh, some other species too i guess and that's never addressed but the way i think about souls in the babylon 5 universe you could imagine that it's not like it's not so strictly like a species thing
1: so I'm gonna make some giant leaps real quick here, and I don't don't tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I'm just gonna say like what I think.
0: Okay.
1: All right. Sinclair originally was the one. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I'm just going to ass- to put out there that if his his soul his soul obviously <clears throat> came from a reincarnated mimbari he must have some prominence within the mimbari to be not only the one, but also a reincarnated memory. So there's something with him that's important.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something that won't reveal anything, but maybe it will hopefully uh, frustrate you in an amusing way. Yeah. Uh, you're right, but your tenses are wrong.
1: God. Okay. No, that's just, that's just infuriating. Thanks. Appreciate
0: it. All right. <laughs> that's why I said it.
1: All right. Well, I'm just going to leave it there then. Cause I, just, I feel like he, they were building him up to be like Cisco and that he's like, you know, some
0: crazy, like, not, not a prophet, necessarily, but, like, some amazing Messiah figure, The one, yeah. I, I will say one thing to foreshadow. Um, Sheridan is going to get treated as a Messiah figure, too, but in a very different way than either uh, Sisko or Sinclair. So we're actually going to wind up with, like, three different uh, Messiah figures nice. in this uh, in this uh, little podcast endeavor of ours actually arguably more than three but at least three
1: but let, let me okay let me just ask you this though does sharon does it just fulfill the path they were originally going to put sinclair on correct
0: that's hard to say i think in broad strokes it would have been similar if sinclair had stayed on the show but because sinclair already existed they had to take sheridan in new directions you can already kind of see that with like the way that Sinclair and Sheridan both have a very similar backstory of like heroism against them in Bari, yeah. but it's still, it's kind of different forms. And a lot of the stuff that Sheridan does Sinclair probably would have done, but it probably would have been different to some degree. And it probably would be inflected more by the things that we're later going to see about Sinclair more than how it was inflected for Sheridan. Does that make sense?
1: That does make sense, yeah. I just want to make sure, like, they didn't just like erase Sinclair's name and write in Sheridan, is what I'm asking. I guess, kind of like if uh, Avery book, if kind of like if Avery Brooks was replaced in like season two of DS Nine, and they continued on with the Prophet story. M-
0: Michael, Eddington, Michael Eddington, the emissary. <laughs> yeah,
1: it'd be it'd be really weird. As I'm saying, I, I just want to make sure that's not just what they planned on doing. Okay, one other one other related topic, and then we can we probably need to just move on to DS Nine at this point because this is getting like, sure, sure. Uh, so much uh, so much up in this episode. Uh, Is, does Lynn going to be coming out of this cocoon soon or are we just going to be like waiting around forever?
0: Wouldn't you like for that to happen? Wouldn't you like for that to happen?
1: She was in the opening credits, but you told me already that's non-canon.
0: So for all I know, she's dead. Yeah, she could be dead. Garibaldi could be dead. The uh, opening credits could just be an elaborate, uh, elaborate troll of you and other first time viewers, Matt. All right, then. Okay. Well,
1: hopefully Delaine comes out of her cocoon in the next couple of episodes and I'm getting tired of looking at it. Alright,
0: uh, All right. so moving on to the search, part one and part two. This is the one where they test drive the Defiant. So in the A-plot, Cisco returns to DS9 with a new beefed-up small warship, the Defiant, and a mission to take, t- take it to the Gamma Quadrant and contact the elusive founders of the Dominion and in the B plot while Cisco and the rest of the staff deal with a distressing new treaty between the Federation Dominion and Cardassian Union that cedes Bajora to the Dominion and threatens to invite war with the Romulans Odo and Kira explore a rogue planet in the Amaran Nebula that is Odo's people's homeworld
1: yeah this was a this was a weird two-porter like the first episode was really strong yeah. and then the second episode just was not what it should have been
0: yeah i mean i was sort of saying that earlier when we were talking about the maquis that there's a kind of long tradition in star trek two-parters of the first part of being really cool and then the second part being a kind of failed attempt to like contain or reel back in what the first part does and this is that but in a very new form right like I, it's like even though i even though it's broadly similar to like how best of both worlds part two or like um Equinox part two work just the specifics are wild and not very much like any other star Trek two-parter I've seen.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's a point in the, in the episode uh, when you get to part two, there's a scene where Cisco and Bashir are in the shuttlecraft and Cisco kind of giving a log of what's going on in the last six days. And then Bashir and Cisco, they like turn around in their seats and Oh, it's Jadzia and O'Brien They're you know, back or whatever. And they're like, we need to get you back to the station. Big things are happening. And Cisco's like, okay. And it's like super jarring as an adult to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, uh I, did, I
0: wonder I wonder how intentional that jarring is. I don't know.
1: I, I felt like it was just the writers trying to get themselves out of a hole. And that's pretty much what we, we're watching. Just...
0: I mean, I can I imagine them wanting to tease that it's a simulation, but not wanting to, you know. And so that's a way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So you saw this back in the '90s? I did. Yeah, yeah. I did see it back
1: in the '90s. Yeah, yeah. I never,
0: I never did. I never did. So I, I never had the experience of like, you know, probably as a stupid kid, I would have like, it would have looked as a, like a seamless hole to me. But here, I was just very, con- I was really surprised by how strange Part Two was when I first saw it a few years ago. So um, this is one of the things I thought was really interesting in Part One is we have a sort of sequel to like Cisco and Quark. Uh, getting irritated at each other in the Jim Hadar episode. And Cisco seems to have kind of taken some of Quark's criticisms to heart. He's boned up even more on uh, Ferengi culture. We already saw him use Ferengi culture to manipulate Quark way back in the pilot. And then he outflanks Quark and goes to the Negus to get the Negus to task Quark to go with him to the Gamma Quadrant to contact the founders. And I just thought that was all very funny and very charming. Yeah, that scene was
1: brilliant. And I really like how like Cisco got a hold of I don't know, is the Nagus cane or whatever that thing is. I don't remember what it's called. Uh the thing with the Nagus' head on the top. Yes, yes. And it's it's basically like Cisco out quirked Quark at this point. It was it was brilliant. Cisco's getting yeah. smarter. He gets like smarter he, as he, yeah. as the episodes, as the seasons go, which I, I, I appreciate.
0: You see real One change. One of the things I sort of appreciate about this is it it like it's, we were saying in season two it didn't feel like there was many great Cisco episodes, like Maybe the Maquis and uh, maybe the episode where we saw him manipulate the Riddler and his girlfriend to try and protect Zia Dax. But other than that, there wasn't a lot of great Cisco content. And here we're seeing a lot more of him. And we're also seeing him interact with people who are not his crew, like we see him interact with Uh, his son a lot more than we had lately and then we see him interact with quark and then i really appreciated i mean granted it's in the simulation but i really appreciated cisco's interactions with garrick which i think are the first time we've really seen them have a a substantial conversation and that that was really fun yeah everything
1: else the every every other scene between garrick and cisco has been very short and just kind of like i think garrick tells cisco at one point like stop by for a new suit i have just for you or something and that was about it there's nothing major that's going on between those two characters which is surprising after two after two full seasons there haven't been
0: yeah oh well, i think this probably does mark a point where ds9 is getting much more into like the character development because i mean granted there's some really good stuff in season two but season two is still to a certain extent like season one kind of stuck in that like more episodic formula and i think with the Dominion, we finally see DS9 getting kind of comfortable more playing like the long game in terms of serialization, even though there's obviously still episodic plots.
1: Yeah, in part one, there's a really good scene between Cisco and Jake where Jake finally called DS9 home. So they're actually accepting that that's like their
0: home now where they live. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it does feel like a kind of conscious attempt to like make the show a little bit more habitable for like Cisco as a character. Like they, you know, they felt like he could have too much for, especially in season one and two, just that he could have been like, you know, on any command and could have been any character. And there seems to be like a concerted effort to, to make it a bit more specific to him. But man, poor Odo, he, he's apparently has been on the chopping block for like two years and
1: Cisco didn't want to make that cut.
0: I gotta say, I, I find Odo very annoying in this watch through with you. I, I didn't find him so annoying in prior watch throughs, but he's he's such a messy little drama queen in this episode. It was he, really,
1: he really is drama in part one. It's really, like, weird. <laughs> he's, like, it was almost like he's pouting. Yeah.
0: When I, some of that is, you know, I think it's, like, the explanation that's kind of implicit in this and maybe teased out more in the paracanon is that, like, there's, you know, a genetic compulsion built into these changeling uh, babies who are sent out to return to the Omaron Nebula. So some of it can be chalked up to that, but like, oh man, his his fretting over like Starfleet trying to replace him, it's just like, bro, you collaborated with the Cardassians. What yeah. do you expect? <laughs> uh, we
1: we get an intru- we, we're introduced to two new characters, Michael Eddington and, and T Rule, which <laughs> just saying it like that sounds sounds like
0: uh, damn, you, you, you uh, pushing for uh, T rule to drop a, a drop a new hot uh, hip hop single from yeah, that, Atlanta or St. Louis? Yeah, that's that's what it sounds like. But anyway, I, I believe the the proper uh, pronunciation would be T rule, T-Rool. not T rule, not T rule. <laughs> yeah, there's not a space there. There's not. There's not. A, there, it's not T period rule. Regardless,
1: uh, she, she's very boring. I think she was just there to like play as a tutorial for the cloaking of the defiant. Like her, all her seeds revolve around something going on with the
0: defiant. So I never I never realized until the notes for this episode that you have such a prejudice against the Romulans, Matt. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. They're just boring. They're just a, they're just an offshoot of the Vulcans. <laughs> it's just not I I could not disagree more strongly. The Romulans are great. The source of some of my favorite next generation episodes. Uh, they're very fun. One of the things I like the most about Picard is that they seem to be committed to exploring the Romulans more, although that hasn't always gone in directions I love. But still, I appreciate that Picard is trying see, to see. I go was there. just
1: about. I was just going to say, I enjoyed the Romulans and the Picard.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. How 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 are my podcast partners with such a tasteless? Prejudice uh, I don't know. Man? <laughs> I, I like the
1: Romulans of Picard. That's like the first time I've been like, oh, those are actually kind. Of, they're actually kind of interesting. In this that I don't know.
0: So you you you're a big supporter of the Zat Vash man? That's what I'm hearing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a Zat fanatic. All right. What about Eddington? What did you think about
0: that guy? Um, I like Eddington. He's uh he's a little bit of a brown noser, which I think gets played up later this season too. But he he's fun. I I I enjoy editing. I I think in some ways, like they could have maybe done things a little differently with his character made it feel more organic but i, I still on the whole i'm, I'm a, i like Eddington and i'm glad he's on the show although yeah. i don't i don't think he shows up that that much this season in my memory but my memory might be wrong yeah i don't i don't really remember much about him at all other than he like has the hots
1: for kira does he he did the, he this did episode the, i thought he did didn't he have like a little thing about like he he that's like the first scene you meet him and he's kind of like flirting with kira
0: I just took it to be him brown nosing, but I we I've already confessed that I wasn't necessarily watching this as close as. Why does he as got as a brown nose with with Kira? She's the first officer, bro. So she outranks him,
1: but she's not Federation.
0: So get good but, recommendation for your first officer. She commands, yeah, a lot of Federation yeah, personnel. I guess you're right, but
1: he does look like an extra from like Next Gen. When you look at him, he looks like I've se- like I've seen this guy before
0: in the background somewhere. Maybe if we take your point seriously, we can just point to that's the extent of Eddington's brown nosing is that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't even distinguish Federation personnel, Romulan personnel, Bajoran personnel. (laughs) He's he's there for it. He just brown noses everybody. Oh man. Now I really want to see like Eddington try and suck up to Martok. That would be a great, (laughs) that'd be a great plot.
1: In this episode, we're introduced to the Defiant. And I feel like in season three, if, if this were me watching DS9 for the very first time. Like mm-hmm. and it, this episode came out, and I'm watching it. You know, in 1990, was it 94, 95? I would be like, I think 94. I would be like, I would think they're okay. Now they decided to take this show and turn it into an exploration show. Did you get those
0: kind of feelings, like when you? Um, I don't. I can see where you would say that. I don't know if I would because I'd, I'd point out that at the end of the simulation, so much hinges upon. Like foreshadowing the Dominion taking control of DS Nine, and oh, uh, will they take control of Bejor? Do we need to destroy the wormhole? And all of that um, kind of uh, that that like anticipates where the show's going, pretty interestingly, and so I think that that sort of stress might have kept me from making the assumption that this is now going to be more a show about the Defiant in the Gamma Quadrant than a show about the station. But I, I can see why you would think that though.
1: Yeah. I feel like with part one, if I would have been, wa- if I would have watched it when it first aired back in 94, I would have been like, wait a minute, they're like trying to like turn this into regular Trek. <laughs> but then by part two, of course, like you just said, that they would have been turned around, but that part one episode been like, uh, eh, this is very similar to things we've seen in the past with next gen and, exploring a track that deals with the exploration instead of
0: what ds9 is well it really is sort of interesting the more i think about it like i don't necessarily think the simulation is good but like the simulation is a way for the episode to kind of experiment with the type of show that ds9 would become with like sort of like cisco being the kind of active participant but also like kind of on the sidelines between like the, you know, great power politics between the Federation, the Dominion, the Cardassians and the Romulans that actually does like kind of anticipate where a lot of the plot of the show goes. And so I, like I said, I, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say, I think the simulation is a good device, but it, it's a really fascinating device. The more I think about it and the more we talk about it.
1: Part one also stresses like the strength of starships over stations and how like the defiant has no families labs or luxuries and it has like some limitations like yeah that's kind of, that's
0: kind of the rejoinder against the enterprise d isn't it
1: right it's got like weapons and engines that are way too powerful for its actual frames so which is a big it's like a warship you know what i mean and, and everything yeah is... yeah but you get every character saying something negative about it you've got bashir like bitching about the small bed lab you've got cisco bitching about the crappy replicator Uh, poor Odo has to like room with Quark because there aren't really that many places to sleep (laughs) (laughs) I mean they really they really do like throw it in your face about how this is a different starship this is a different kind of starship it kind of reminds me of Enterprise like the first like you know how when that original ship was uh, first shown
0: how it was supposed to be more like a submarine yeah yeah there's, there's big submarine aesthetics on the Defiant as well yeah oh and that's kind of interesting like Discovery kind of went away from this, but it's kind of interesting that after Next Generation, all three shows were in some sense, like even though people really liked the Next Generation, in some sense, they were like a reaction against like the Enterprise D and like how like kind of luxurious and city like it felt. So, yeah, you have the Defiant is like the stripped down ship and then voyager is not as stripped down but still because of the limitations of being stranded in the in the delta quadrant there's still you know rhetoric about shortage rhetoric about you know getting kind of feeling kind of cooped up and then like you say the the with the enterprise the NX-01 the idea is oh get back to the beginning you know there's it's a submarine they don't have, they don't have any of the fancy transporter technology that you know and love that sort of stuff
1: i like when the defiant does show up and we start seeing it as a warship used you know throughout the uh, the war and stuff but uh, i'm glad they they do continue on with the space station piece and don't move away from that so that that's appreciated especially well hell, i feel like they could the i feel like they could yeah i felt they could have moved away from it if they wanted to and tried to like just make that, like, the port. It, it's the same way with Babylon 5, though. Like, you don't... They never leave that station. That's just
0: always, like, centered on... Oh, it. that's... Uh, that's gonna change. Oh, God. Really? It, it's not gonna change for a while, but it is gonna change. Do they get a ship called the Defiant and get to fly it out? Uh, basically, yes. Oh, my God. So, oh. it... I, I was actually gonna say uh, save that till it debuted in Babylon 5, but, yeah, basically... Oh. Either either Babylon Five straight up copied the Defiant, or more likely, um, the Defiant was uh, inspired by the pitch document for Babylon Five. Jeez. All right. Well, I look forward
1: to that. I guess. Sorry, man. i I feel bad for spoiling you. It's. A, I'll forget by the time it does air, and you'll be out. You'll be all outraged all over again. I, and I wouldn't have. I wouldn't. I won't be surprised, honestly, because I could see them having to. They got to leave the
0: station at some
1: point. So they're gonna need something.
0: Yeah, and the the runabouts and the fighters just aren't getting it done, you know. Yeah.
1: So when Cisco does return to the uh, to Deep Space Nine in part two, the <laughs> he meets a Vorta. the dude The Vorta's name is Borat, <laughs> and I thought that was so funny.
0: I'm a Borat. <laughs> I'm a Vorta. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I he just needs really negative opinions about uh, either Jim Hadar or like <laughs> what uh, what are the name of the weird forehead aliens that Quark made contact with the yeah. Kareen yeah the Kareen yeah they're just yeah. Also,
1: apparently Cisco was in that, in that shuttlecraft with uh, Bashir for six days and he gets back
0: to the station and he doesn't change his uniform out before going to see uh, Borat. So, I mean, you know, he, the, the founders like Borat got him into this situation and so, you know, Cisco is going to remind him of that with his rank smell. I mean, I'm pretty sure humans probably smell bad to Vorta in any situation, but especially when they've been in a, uh, in a runabout unwa- or escape pod unwashed for six days. 6 days of funk. Heyo.
1: All right. We haven't said anything about uh the founder's homeworld
0: here. Any any impressions anything you want to say about that? Um I mean, it's it's a homeworld. It's uh I yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I like I said I just not I'm just not digging the Odo story as much this time through so far, and so I'm just not having like I don't I just don't have any great observations. I do kind of like that Kira is there to kind of like support him and comment on it though it's it's a good dynamic and they'll they'll play with that di- that dynamic later in the show
1: i you, you didn't like when he turned into a bird and was
0: flying around and he knows what it's like to be the bird he's a bird and cure just happens to find that door on the planet you know hey man if there's one thing star trek has taught me is that there's always a door anything else we need to say about this ds9 episode before we wrap it up turns out this podcast episode was all a simulation matt it was all a simulation we've got to we've got to record it again but it'll be less apocalyptic this time.
1: I, I guess I give the writers props for at least trying to make it seem like there were some consequences and you thinking Dax was going to leave the station and the Jim Hador already kind of taking their place on the station and being like a mean ass O'Brien that was going to be a different feel for season three.
0: Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm.
1: then turning it into a simulation, just like maybe it wasn't as big of a trope back then, but now it's just, you know, in 2021, you're like, eh. Yeah.
0: That's bad. It's a way to kind of get the sense of the Dominion as a more powerful opponent, too, in an interesting way. Because usually, like in Star Trek episodes before this, where it's all like a simulation or a dream, it's like, you know, a kind of powerful, like, godlike character who's not going to reappear, or it's Q. And here, it's like, no, like an ongoing rival power did this to them. And I I think that's a little bit of an interesting variation. And again, I, I can't defend... The simulation thing is a dramatic storytelling technique, but I I do think it is really interesting how they experimented with all the ways that the show, you know, would actually go in later seasons in in this little simulation. Who was the best character this week? For me, Sheridan. No question. I love Sheridan. I'm going to say Odo just because you disliked Odo so much in this. I mean, I have to respect a choice that's born out of spite since that's the way most of my choices are born.
1: I will say that Odo is a
0: whiny bitch, though, in both these episodes. So. Yeah, yeah, he he's got a lot of feelings this episode, a whole lot of feelings, maybe too many feelings.
1: Best episode is Search Part One.
0: Yeah, as much as I hate to agree with you about anything, uh, yeah, you're right about that. Search Part One.
1: The Babylon Five episode was just it felt like starting yeah. over, kind of. <laughs> it just,
0: I mean, yeah. Well, it, the absence of like Delenn, Kosh, Londo, and Jakar didn't do it any favors. Body. Uh, the absence of Garibaldi's fine that doesn't bother yeah. me.
1: It's just, I just felt like I mean I felt like nothing was resolved and we just got a brand new character and there was just a whole separate plot with you know, the Trigati. Yeah, I really wanted to know what was going to happening. I feel like too like going back to, if I if I was watching this for the first time back in the day, I probably would have been mm-hmm. disappointed with this episode
0: because I got nothing resolved that from the season finale of. Season one. Well, you do get you do finally get the explanation about why the Minbari held back and didn't destroy Earth, which I think is interesting. And yep. honestly, like I, I I actually thought that ex- explanation was really cool. It seems like it mostly annoyed you, but well, I, when I annoying. when I first watched this episode, I thought that was a really cool revelation. What's on the docket for next week? Well, Matt, we've got a uh, Revelations, which is a uh, season two, episode two of Babylon Five, and then we've got a, a highly anticipated episode by me—one that's uh, going to make you miserable. And I really, really look forward to savoring every bit of your misery that I can. That is DS Nine, season three, episode two, House of Quark. Oh, damn. Damn, we're already getting the uh, explicit tag, and we haven't even started the House of Quark episode. Matt just can't restrain himself, people. If you if you could see him on the video chat right now, he's frothing. I think he just kicked his dog. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not excited about any Ferengi episode. That, but Matt, this isn't just a Ferengi episode; it's a Ferengi Klingon oh, episode. God, this is going to be awful. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that this is going to be so miserable for you. Mm. this is all i want yeah it's gonna be bad all right well all right ladies and gentlemen so join us next time as uh matt suffers and i revel in it this has been the greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows uh babylon 5 versus deep space 9 this is bob from cascadia i've had matt from the southland on the line thanks everybody
1: i might pull sinclair next week and just (laughs) you can have someone named sheridan come take my place